When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Each of us has a role to play in making a difference. You know, if you're a singer, sing. If you're a dancer, dance. If you work in a huge multinational corporation, use your power there to create change, to treat people with dignity, and uh, to treat yourself with love and dignity and respect. That was Carrie Kennedy. Her last name is famous. She's one of 11 children of Ethel and the late Robert F. Kennedy. And she's lived up to her family's legacy as a human rights champion and lawyer, and the president of the RF Kennedy Human Rights Organization. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. In her own words, Carrie Kennedy had a beautiful, idyllic childhood, one that was also touched by tragedy. She was eight when her father was gunned down, even younger when her uncle, President John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. She grew up with a strong sense of justice. Before taking the presidency of the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization, Carrie was chair of Amnesty International, USA Leadership Council. Her work has won worldwide honors, including from Polish President Lech Walesa, for aiding the Solidarity Movement. Carrie Kennedy is also the author of multiple best-selling books, including Being Catholic Now, Speak Truth to Power, and Robert F. Kennedy, Ripples of Hope. Listen and learn why Carrie Kennedy is one of Seneca's 100 women to hear. I'm particularly delighted to have with me in conversation today, Carrie Kennedy, a woman I have long admired and been inspired by her work. Uh, And we're going to talk about some of those efforts that she's been engaged in over many years. So Carrie, thank you so much for being with us today. So happy. Always an honor to be with you. Why is this an important moment to really grow uh, women's progress, certainly in the area of human rights, but in women's leadership generally? 
Well, I think that this is an important moment. I think that we've seen incredible um, progress on human rights issues generally over the last 40 years. Um, I, I started working in human rights in 1980. All of Latin America was under right-wing military dictatorships. There's not one left standing. Eastern Europe was under uh, communism. There's not a communist leader left. South Africa was at the height of apartheid. And women's rights was not on the international agenda. It wasn't until Hillary Clinton, along with you, went to Beijing and, and declared women's rights are human rights. Still to this day, the most famous thing she ever said that put women's rights on the international agenda. All of those changes happened, not because governments wanted them to or militaries wanted them to or huge multinational corporations wanted them to. All those huge powers, the biggest powers on earth, were against those changes. They happened because... As, as Margaret Mead said, small groups of determined people harnessed the dream of freedom and made it come true. So today, when we hear about human rights abuses, about this, and it feels like it's growing and growing and growing, and we're learning about more horrors every single day, every single time I hear someone talking about a new issue I'd never heard about, other people hide on the, under the table, I stand up and applaud because I know human rights abuses only happen under cover of night. And as soon as someone starts talking about it, as soon as a local woman comes, stands up and says, this is unacceptable in my home, my community, my country, I feel like that's the first step to creating change. And we are on the path. We know how to create change. We know how to hold governments responsible. We know how to hold corporations responsible. And we're going to get the job done. So shining a light uh, on these dark places uh, is something uh, that the RF Kennedy Foundation has done. You have led much of that work, uh, continues to do. I, I wish you could... Um, describe for our listeners some of the kinds of human rights work uh, that you're doing, particularly in the, in the women's space, uh, because as you said, this whole area of women's rights uh, is something that we finally got chiseled into international human rights law, but that doesn't mean uh, that domestic violence doesn't continue. It doesn't mean that human trafficking isn't ongoing and a multi-billion dollar business today. It doesn't mean that honor killings have ended. So what, what does the foundation do? What do you as a leader of this extraordinary foundation do in this space? Well, I sort of, um, I uh, see us in working in three different areas. So number one is holding governments accountable for human rights abuses. We do that through, uh, through litigation and advocacy. So um, we take, we have about 35 cases at any given time throughout Africa and Latin America, and we've never lost a case. And every single one of those cases has implications beyond the borders of their country. Can you give so, us an example of a case? Sure. For instance, um, Guatemala, which you and I visited in the 1980s, I think it was, um, uh, has one of the worst records of femicide, gender-based homicide. Almost, it's less than 5% of the cases of 
uh, rape and murder of women have had a perpetrator serve jail time as a consequence of their actions. So it's total impunity for this. So we took up the case of a woman who had been raped and murdered on, uh, on behalf of her family. Um, we brought it to the uh, International the, um, Court for Human Rights, which is the Latin American uh, branch of that. Um, and we sued and we won. And that forced Guatemala to take certain steps to create change. So what did they have to do? They had to make a public apology to the family. That's a big first step. They had to make reparations to that family. They had to put streetlights in certain cities, in parts of cities that had never had streetlights before. They had to buy a certain number of rape crisis kits and use those rape crisis kits within a certain amount of time. They had to hire a certain number of women police officers. They had to hire women as uh, victim advocates in those in police stations. So, and then they had to pass a law, um, which uh, which is um, uh, uh, named after our client, um, where people can call immediately if a woman is picked up and disappeared. So, um, you know, those are concrete actions where you're seeing change in a country. Now, that's important for Guatemala, but. This is a court that sits above the Supreme Courts of all the countries in Latin America. So that case, winning that case, has implications throughout the entire region and sets precedent for the African courts. So that's really um, the kind of work that has lasting value in terms of the change uh, that comes about because of these cases that you bring. Yes, so that's one piece of it. So we hold governments accountable. We also hold corporations accountable. And we do that through the investors in the corporations. So most people, you think about the supply chain as going from the CEO to the manager to the person on the factory floor. But we think of supply chains as going from the person on the factory floor to the manager to the CEO to the private equity company, to the pension fund, or a university endowment, or sovereign wealth fund that's investing in that pension fund. And if we can get the sovereign wealth fund to put downward pressure um, and start holding those corporations accountable, we believe we can create change. So and let's, let's talk about um, human trafficking or modern-day slavery. Uh, it is a multi-billion dollar business. It goes on extensively today. We have passed laws. There's a lot of good work going on. And much of it is evidence, certainly labor trafficking, labor slavery, happens in the area of sourcing. Um, often companies are aware, often they're not aware uh, of exactly what's going on in their uh, sourcing operations that utilize uh, slave labor to produce whatever it is that's being produced. You just described sort of the long reach of how many aspects of a company's work are touched by this. So let's take that as an issue, um, human slavery, insourcing. How does, let's say, a case that the foundation brings, how does that 
uh, so in, present itself. Okay, so in in that arena, there are um, we have you know a handful of ways of addressing slavery. So one thing we can do is bring lawsuit. Um, you can do name and shame. Go to the uh, go to the to the source of the problem. Um, work with the local union. Uh, get a journalist to go and write about it, expose it, and put an op-ed in the New York Times. What we found is that can be helpful, but it's usually it ends up to be whack-a-mole. So you get them to change it in in um, Cambodia, but the next time they're doing, the next year they're doing the same thing in Vietnam. So that's why we're trying to go to the actual um, investors in that corporation. So one thing is name and shame. Another thing is you can bring lawsuits under the uh, Slavery Act in in Britain and under corruption acts and, and other types of um, uh, legislation in the United States and other countries. Another thing you can do is work with consumers um, and get consumers to understand what they're buying and to demand change. Uh, so those are those are just some of the ways that we can do this. And then another thing is you can work with the auditors. Most of those co companies have auditors, but a lot of those auditors are corrupt. Um, they don't do a good job in the first place. They don't have standards. Then they feel like their job is to not find the problem in the first place. So um, we have to make sure that the auditors are doing the right job. Would you uh, agree uh, that the private sector has become much more engaged in this space? I can remember personally years ago, there were very few companies um, in, the, in the days of awareness that this actually was a phenomena, something we had to be aware of that was taking its toll on people. Um, but it seems that s more and more com companies today are aware that this is something they have to confront if it is something in which uh, there is some touching of their their company's operations uh, with this phenomena of human trafficking. Absolutely. I think companies are much more aware. Consumers are much more aware. There is far more empowerment of the mostly women who are at the bottom end of the supply chain. There's social media that can embarrass companies and everybody is subjected to that today in a way that they weren't even 10 years ago. But what I think one big difference has been with the investors in those companies. So let's say 10 years ago, um, when a investor, or say a sovereign wealth fund or a big pension plan was considering an investment, they would only look at financial algorithms. But today they look at, um, at three different issues that are not financial. They look at um, environmental issues, they look at governance, which is basically transparency, and then they look at the S. It's called the S and ESG. And the S is about slavery. It's about human trafficking. It's about um, human rights abuses. And that audit, building um, metrics around the S, has helped large investors put downward pressure on those corporations. So I think that's one piece of it. 
Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So there's a second piece of this that's important, particularly to women. We bring together at RFK Human Rights, we bring together about 150 people twice a year who control about $7 trillion in assets managed, which is about 10% of the world's economy. Imagine that, 150 people. And we talk to them about the impact of human rights violations on investment outcomes. One piece of that is supply chain. One piece of that is technology and human rights. But a third piece is women and minority-owned firms in the investment industry. So we brought together the 30 largest university endowments in the United States. You can imagine they're all the IVs, et cetera. And we said to them, these are, these are institutions that are mandated to, um, to be committed to diversity and inclusion. And we said, what percentage of your endowment dollars is invested by women and minority-owned firms. You know what the answer was? Less than 2%. Mm. Less than 2%. So women are not going to be empowered. We're not going to solve all these issues until women have the financial resources and are given the chance to create change and to invest in the companies that they understand our best for their communities. Well, you know, one corollary of that is uh, what I see increasingly as women, particularly as they have more means today and are working with um, wealth fund managers, they're demanding to know uh, where are their investments going. And admittedly, they want a good return on their investment, but they want to know that the company is one that is looking after 
uh, progress for women in their company. What, what are the numbers of women on boards in management? Uh, what is happening in terms of the community and their impacts on the larger community? So this is becoming a really important tool, I think, both in um, advancing human rights, but one aspect of that is certainly um, the rights of women and progress for women. But, you know, Carrie, for as long as I've known you, you have been so passionate about these issues. And I wonder... Uh, why is this so important to you personally? Because you can't be engaged in this work, I don't believe, unless you you bring with it what you do, which is that full sense of your total engagement and your absolute commitment uh, to making a difference. I've seen it in the way that you engage on with the totality of who you are. So what is it about your personal engagement, why it's important to you as a person? Well, first of all, I grew up with seven brothers and three sisters, and I'm the seventh of 11, and it makes you appreciate human rights at a very young age. Indeed. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, um, I mean, just briefly, my personal story, my earliest memories are when my uncle was assassinated, Um, When I was eight years old, my father was gunned down uh, because in retaliation for his support of Israel. Um, When I was in fifth grade, my closest, one of my closest friends came to me and said that her father was beating up her mother. And I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know if it was a secret. Could I tell anyone? Should I tell my mother? How should I think? How should I protect my friend? How should I protect this woman? How do I think about the father who was at our house every weekend playing football with us and who I loved? And then when I was in high school, my two best friends were raped. And again, a big secret. Who do you tell? Who do you not tell? How do you protect them? How do you take care of them? And then uh, as a senior in high school, I lived, I was in boarding school, but I lived with a local family in Vermont. And the the son, who is my age, and one of my closest friends, was gay. And he was one of the first people in the United States to die from HIV AIDS. And he was not out of a closet because it wasn't safe for him. And um, so I lived this beautiful, fabulous, idyllic life. But I had all of these things happen that were so disruptive and chaotic and made even everything that was great in my life sort of fall apart. And then I spent a semester working at um, Amnesty International, and somebody handed me the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I read that and those articles, and I realized that all the crazy things that happened in my life had one thing in common. They were all violations of human rights. And that there was a way of working with refuseniks in Russia and anti-apartheid activists in South Africa and the mothers of the disappeared in El Salvador, all who were working on the same issues. And I could learn from them, and I could stop this from happening. And so that's how I've spent my life. <laughs> well, it, it's and it's got its rewards. I mean, being able to, uh, as we often say, uh, use one's power, one's position, uh, wherever one finds herself uh, for purpose is something that is one of life's great rewards. And I think you have certainly found that. 
But as you were talking about some of those uh, horrific situations that you encountered, some as a child, some uh, as an adult, um, they truly were violations of human rights. And you could have gotten very depressed over hearing about it over and over and learning about it. But I sense from you, I've always sensed from you, a sense of optimism, a sense of hopefulness, a sense that we can do better. Well, you know, I used to talk about human rights and people would say, oh, that's very nice. And then they'd scatter across the room, you know, because you say that word and people think, oh, my God, this is going to be about torture or uh, extrajudicial killings or something horrible. And um, but that was not my experience. I mean, I'm working with the bravest people on earth, people who face imprisonment and torture and death every day for the rights we take for granted, and they are winning. They're doing it. They're creating that change. If you think about Martin Luther King, you don't think about him as a victim. Even though he was in that Birmingham jail, we don't think of him as a victim. We think of him as a hero. We don't think of Malala as a victim. We think of her as a hero. One Karimathai, that's not a victim, that's a hero. And so all of these, and Milan, you, not a victim, a hero. Somebody who is, you know, Dolores Huertas, so many others, Hillary Clinton, who have stood up their whole lives for, for their communities and for others. So I just feel so blessed every day to know these people and be inspired by them and get to work with them. Well, I think it's, it's so well said um, about the fact that one could be hopeless looking at so many human rights defenders today who are finding themselves in, incru- in increasingly excruciating situations and yet knowing by virtue of what they do, by virtue of what you do, by virtue of what so many others are doing, they are giving all of us hope. Uh, and um, I do think in this business you can be very pessimistic, but it is important also to recognize uh, that those who are engaged um, in, uh, in those frontline battles all over the world uh, are really people who give us all hope as well. Well, you know, I think um, the difference between a victim and a hero is activism. And, uh, you know, who wants to be a victim? No one, lo- no one loves a victim. So we all have to find some way of resisting, of standing up. And it's not necessarily against a government or a school. It can be with our own families. It can be with our relationships with others. So um, we all have a role to play. You know, I heard that uh, Bishop Tutu was asked once uh, about um, the fact that he always seems so joyful and optimistic, and yet he sees all around him so much that still needs to be done, so many people who are suffering greatly. And his answer was that he couldn't go on with life if he weren't what he called himself, a prisoner of hope. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think it's good to be a prisoner of hope Mm -hmm. uh, and to make a difference uh, in the process. So let me ask you in conclusion, um, I see so much idealism in young people. 
and one never knows if it will stay with them as they go forward into the so-called world, uh, or uh, if they will, uh, if it will just be momentary times in their in their youthful efforts to really be change makers. Um, but what's your advice to young people today? You, in many ways, I think particularly of those who are active, who are active on climate, who are active on human rights, who are active in, in trying to make life better for, for people. In fact, using business today and all their learning um, about the system to use it as, as a means to really create social change. Uh, not just invent that new product, as important as it might be, but to really solve some of the world's great problems. What's the best advice you can give them um, out of a life that clearly has brought you enormous rewards, always struggling and working in that field of human rights, um, that you can tell them? I would say, first of all, each of us has a role to play in making a difference. You know, if you're a singer, sing. If you're a dancer, dance. If you work in a huge multinational corporation, use your power there to create change, um, to treat people with dignity, and uh, to treat yourself with love and dignity and respect. I'd say that's the first thing. And then um, the second thing I'd say is speak truth to power. You'd be surprised by how many people around you want to be doing the right thing, want their companies not to have slavery in the supply chain, really want to feel like they're going to work at a company that they can be proud of. And you deserve that. You deserve to be able to say to your children, look what I did. And so do it. And if you get fired, you'll get fired. You'll find something else that's the right fit for you. But more likely, you're going to help change the culture of your company, and everybody's going to be grateful for that. So wherever you find yourself, you have power. Use it for purpose. There we go. And that's what you have done, <laughs> Carrie Kennedy. So thank you so much uh, for this conversation, and most importantly, for all you do to make a difference. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Malette. I love that. The difference between a victim and a hero is activism. Here are three things I took away from that conversation with Carrie Kennedy. First, progress comes not from the top down, but from the bottom up. As Carrie says, that often happens when a local woman stands up and says, this is unacceptable in my home, my community, my country. This is the first step toward change. Second, each of us has a role to play in advancing human rights. When consumers demand that their products are made fairly and safely, companies take notice. And finally, to ensure progress for all, we have to see that women and minorities are economically empowered, that investment flows toward them, because these are the people who can best create the change that will lift up communities and countries. Tune in next Thursday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. If you'd like to join the Seneca Women Network, 
go to SenecaWomen.com. There you'll get access to exclusive events and workshops, plus updates on new podcasts and other opportunities to get involved. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.